Welcome to the Freedom to Rise podcast, a production of United Way Suncoast. Here's your host, Bronwyn Baytal. Welcome to another episode of United Way Suncoast's Freedom to Rise podcast. I'm your host, Bronwyn Baytal. As I start this podcast, I'm reminded of Horace Mann, known as a tireless advocate for public education. His words in 1848, education, beyond all other divides of human origin, is a great equalizer of conditions of men. This podcast addresses the most important time for education in our lives, a child's first three years. It's a critical factor in the success of our educational system, our workforce, our state, and our entire society. The statistics help tell the story. According to the Division of Early Learning, Florida is home to more than one million children under the age of five. The state welcomes 600 newborns every day, and as many as 700,000 Florida children attend some type of early learning program. On today's episode, we'll celebrate some amazing wins for early education in the state of Florida and ask how our state legislature and our communities can continue to enhance our early education efforts. We'll explore these questions and more with two dedicated lawmakers from the Florida House of Representatives. Representative Chris Latvala and Representative Vance Lupus. Representative Latvala has represented the state's 67th House District, which includes parts of Largo and Clearwater since 2014. He's championed legislation that's improved child welfare protection, including the important Jordan's Law, and currently serves as the chair of the Florida House's Education and Employment Committee. Welcome to the podcast, Representative Latvala. Good evening. Representative Alupas has represented the state's 115th House District, which includes parts of Miami-Dade County since 2018. He also serves as the Chief Executive Officer of the Children's Movement of Florida, a nonpartisan nonprofit that advocates for high-quality early learning opportunities, access to children's health care, and parent support programs in Florida. Welcome, Representative Alupas. Thanks, Robert. It's so, it's so great to see you. Great. Thank you very much. It is, it's fun to be reunited with old friends. So before we delve into early learning, first, I want to thank you both and for your ardent support for our children. We've had a great legislative session and our community is grateful. And I know that our children are better off for it. So thank you both very much. I want to ask also both of you, because I think it's really interesting to learn why people do some of the things that they do. So what inspired each of you to run for office? And Chris, since you've been at it longer, perhaps you'll, you'll kick that question off. Sure. Uh, thank you very much uh, for having me uh, this evening. I've always been around politics uh, since I can remember. And growing up, I thought it was boring. I wanted to be a sports play-by-play broadcaster. In high school, I had a TV production teacher that told me I wasn't cut out to be on TV. So I thought about uh, maybe going in a different direction. And in college, I started getting a desire for politics. And my freshman year in college just so happened to be the 2000 uh, presidential election, which was an exciting time in American history. So that started getting me more uh, civic-minded. After college, I started working on some political campaigns, and I became a uh, legislative aide in the Florida House of Representatives for then Representative Ed Hooper. 
who at that time was a representative from Clearwater, and he was a retired firefighter. Uh, Now he's a a Florida uh, senator, a state senator from our area. But working for him gave me the desire not just to run for office, but to run for the Florida House of Representatives, because I was able to see the kind of representative he was and the impact that he had. So when he retired in 2014, I ran for uh, the seat that he held and, and was successful. Nice. Thank you. Vance? Brian, you and I have known each other. We were talking before we got started for about a decade. My my life's work, I went to University of Miami, University of Miami School of Law, practiced law for a couple of years and very quickly realized it was not what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. And really sort of by the grace of God, got connected with a gentleman by the name of David Lawrence Jr., who is you know one of the pillars of, of my community, but really one of our nation's leaders in early childhood education and, and started working in advocacy around early learning in 2010 and would go up to Tallahassee every single year, you know, trying to get meetings with members, trying to get meetings with senators to talk about the importance of early learning. And, you know, what I found often is that people would tell me that, you know, they care about early learning, that it's important, but nothing really ever happened, right? We would see the base student allocation for pre-K remain the same year after year. We would never see the transformational legislation that we know needed to happen to ensure that, you know, every child in Florida had an, had an, a high quality early learning experience. And, and honestly, Bronwyn, for me, after about seven years of going back and forth to Tallahassee and feeling as though, to a certain extent, I was just going to start getting patronized. I said, you know what, I'm going I'm to run for office and I'm going to, I want to be that voice for early childhood in the legislature. And I, I went and met with a number of people who I deeply respected, who had been in the process. And I said, you know, am I, am I crazy to think that one person who cares a lot about an issue can make a difference in Tallahassee? And, and almost sort of in unison, they all said, that's the only thing that makes a difference in Tallahassee. Because there's one person who's willing to sort of stand up and say this matters. So, you know, I ran for the legislature in 2018 with that sort of as my background of, of being an advocate for eight years and won in 2018 and then ran for re-election in 2020. It, it's, it's surreal for me for two reasons. One, I get to work with people like Speaker Sprouls and, and more, you know, as it relates to tonight, you know, people like Chairman Latvala, who, you know, aren't just friends, but people that I know care about these issues, which is something we haven't had in Tallahassee for, for as long as I've been around, who truly not only care, but are willing to do something about it. And secondly, have been, you know, given the opportunity to serve as the chairman for the early learning and elementary education subcommittee, which for someone like me, Bronwyn, you know, to go from three years ago, trying to get a meeting with Mike Baleka, who I perceive, you know, Chris knows Mike, trying to get a meeting with Mike Baleka, who would tell me, I got, you know, Vince, we're not going to focus on early learning this year. It's a three years later, you know, being the chair of the committee where all of that early learning legislation moves through is, is truly surreal. And I think it just, it's the reason why we, we've been able to see so much progress in this past year. But, you know, not a night do I not go to bed and just feel grateful for the opportunity that I, that I have to, to do this work. Thank you very much. We're all grateful that you both have the opportunity to do this work. And I'm hoping that tonight you'll inspire others to step forward in the same way. As I understand it from our friends at RSA Consulting, there were two significant bills that passed this year that have been worked on for a number of years. I don't want to make it seem as though it's that simple. It's House Bill 419 and House Bill 7011. They passed this session and they're both related to early learning. The first involved, among other things, moving the Office of Early Learning under the umbrella of the Department of Education. I've had a couple of conversations locally about that, and we're wondering, how will that change the accountability for early learning in Florida, one? And two, how will communities address the fact that most childcare early learning providers are privately owned businesses? So how are we going to bring that to life? 
And that's open for either one of you. I was looking at you, Representative Lupus, but I'll, I'll take an answer from either one of you or both. The, you know, the, the whole issue of moving the Office of Early Learning into the Department of Education has always been a contentious conversation, right? The fear of overregulation and the fear of it getting lost in the bureaucracy of a large state agency. But, but the Office of Early Learning, in my estimation, has always been sort of out in the desert with dotted lines to different agencies and no real, you know, no real master. So as I look at it, you know, this is not about daycare, right? The Office of Early Learning used to be in the Agency for Workforce Innovation because it was seen as, as a service so that people could go to work on any given day. You know, the focus is really now on making sure that we are preparing for the, for the workforce of the future. And, and that is an educational conversation. So to me, the Office of Early Learning belongs within the Department of Education, with the K-12 system, with the state college system, with the university system. It, it, it deserves a chancellor with the same sort of level of expertise as you see in all the other divisions of the Department of Education. So that's why I'm, I'm so happy that it was moved to, to within 419. To answer your question about the dynamic of so many private providers, so 80% of all childcare in the state is provided through you know, for-profit small businesses. Very little is provided through, especially the only VPK is provided in the public school system. They don't provide any of the, you know, the infant ones, twos, and three care. And then you have some faith-based care as well. You know, what I, what I think is that clearly there has to be an understanding of the differences between the early learning space and the K-12 space. They're not entirely identical. But with that being said, with the accountability measures that were put into place this year, this is not a baby F gap. This is observational tools to make sure that we understand what the interactions are like between the type teachers and the children, which if you understand early learning, that's probably the best metric you can use to determine the quality of that center. So to, to suggest that, that these regulations are going to be unnecessarily onerous, I, I just I don't I don't accept it. And I think for a program where we're spending four hundred million dollars a year in BPK and another six to seven, eight hundred million dollars for school readiness, you know, north of a billion dollars. You require, I think, I think it demands accountability, not only because of the taxpayer investment that we're making, but because you're talking about children's lives. These are the most formative years of their lives. So we need to know as lawmakers which programs are working and which are not so that we can make good decisions on behalf of our children. Thank you. And it definitely would not make the argument for less professionalism and less accountability in that area. Um, it's the most important time for our children's learning, those first thousand days, those first three years and making sure that there is a coordinated effort to ensure that they get the best. I, I love that this is happening, and I can't wait to see how that plays out. There were just some some questions, kind of on what that looks like. Representative Lotball, I don't want to leave you out of that portion of the conversation if you wanted to add anything. No, ma'am, I'm good. Chair Lupus is the expert in early learning, so when, when he gets rolling, I just let him go. <laughs> That's perfectly all right with us. I'm not sure if I've ever had a conversation with him where he did not bring up early learning in some fashion. That's good to hear. So again, Representative Lupus, you sponsored House Bill 7011 with Senator Rodriguez, and it's going to require a coordinated screening and progress monitoring system for students in VPK through grade eight. Tell us about that change and what you hope it will bring to early education efforts. Yeah, so, so this this bill was a PCB that came out of our, our early learning committee, but this is really the leadership of, of Chair Lodval and Speaker Sprouls taking a focus on literacy, unlike anything we've ever seen in Florida. Bronwyn, you and I know each other from a program called Reading Pals, which you know is a highly intensive reading mentoring program that operates in United Ways across the state, and a, and a hugely successful program in many respects. But when you're talking about addressing the 43% of students who aren't reading at grade level in Florida in third grade, these are these are 
you know, these are monumental challenges before us. And, you know, I think, unfortunately, in Florida, we've seen people sort of try and take small bites of the apple. So we'll have a, a book program over here and over here we'll have a reading program. But, but nobody's doing it in a, in a sort of a holistic way statewide. Yep. Primarily because the resources aren't, aren't there for any philanthropy or school district or, 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 or what have you. So, you know, with, with what Chair Ladvala and Speaker Sprouls have done is they've sort of said, okay, we're going to look at literacy from, from a three-pronged approach. One, it requires that children have books at home, that they have home libraries, and that's HB3, which was run by uh, Representative Trabolsi. So, you know, struggling readers in Florida are going to be getting a book at home every single month, building those home libraries, which are so important. Secondly, supporting parents, that parents know you know, how to talk about emergent literacy, early literacy with their children. And I think this is something that you and I have talked about, Bronwyn. You, you don't even have to be literate to have an early, you know, an early literacy experience or an early learning experience with your child. I think okay. it's just making sure parents know how to have those conversations and the importance of talking to their children. And that's that's being done as well through, through the legislature. But what HB 7011 really focused on was the data side of it and supporting teachers. So the last senior center at the University of Florida did a study to look and see you know, what percentage of teachers who are teaching in, you know, teaching young children have a mastery in emergent literacy? And they found that only 9% of teachers truly understood how to teach reading, which, you know, that's not to speak, speak to how hard teachers work. It's just a question of, are we giving teachers all the tools that they need? So I think it's really concerning that so many of our teachers don't have the resources, don't have the necessary professional development to effectively teach literacy. So what 7011 does is creates the progress monitoring screener from, from pre-K through grade eight. So we can begin to identify when students are falling in and out of proficiency for literacy. So we have the data necessary to identify those students, ensures that, that teachers are getting the emergent literacy PD that they need, professional development that they need to effectively teach reading. Uh, and I think one of the most exciting things about it is it creates something called the RAISE program, which one of our, our house policy staffers sort of coined it as the Navy SEALs of literacy, where they are deployed into a school district or into a school that drops below the 50% threshold for, for literacy, providing intensive resources, you know, financial support to make sure that they bring that school, that school district up to a place where they're above that 50% threshold. But I think if you're if you hear a lot of organizations talking about getting to 100% reading, you know, third grade proficiency by 2030, yeah, we have a long way to go. And we're not mm-hmm. going to get there unless you have the leadership like you have in the Florida House saying literacy is important. You know, a child cannot truly succeed unless he or she knows how to read and is not just learning to read, but reading to learn that whole distinction to third grade. And I think what I've seen, again, coming from this, this space, I've never seen this comprehensive, as comprehensive approach to literacy as, as we saw this past session. And again, I, I give all the credit to, to Speaker Sprouls and Chair Livella for understanding the importance of it and then creating these pieces of policy that we as members get to run. Thank you very much. Um, and Representative Latvala, you've been a little quiet, so we're going to bring you into the conversation. While early learning is certainly a focus of United Way Suncoast and this podcast, we've also devoted quite a bit of time to grade level reading. House Speaker Chris Sprawls and Representative Dana Trabalsi made putting books into the hands of struggling readers a priority this legislative session with House Bill 3, and you championed it, as Representative Aloup has just alluded to. What is Reading IQ and the New Worlds Initiative, and how can families access that? Well, there's two uh, components um, that, that we did. Learning IQ is a website, and it's a company that has opened up their digital library to the state of Florida. And to all kids up to the 12th grade can access their website and their digital library, and I believe they have 5,500 
books, uh, digital books that they're allowing into the state of Florida for free. And so they, they've geofenced uh, the state. Any family in the state of Florida can access that. And that was something that the Florida House did separate from House Bill 3. And what House Bill 3 is that uh, Representative Dana Trabalsi sponsored and Chair Lupus alluded to is a book program where the state of Florida uh, will be partnering with nonprofits and school districts to send books into the homes of struggling readers and, and also low-income readers so these kids can start building their own libraries and they can uh, exchange books and, and borrow books from their siblings and their friends and, and really develop a interest and a passion for reading. Studies have showed that more than 80% of high school dropouts were reading behind a grade level in the third grade. And so if you don't get kids reading by third grade and reading at grade level by third grade, you really are putting them behind the eight ball. And so what the speaker is doing, is really trying to change the cycle of poverty um, and getting these kids. And, and really the only way to change the cycle of poverty is through education. And so uh, this the speaker is really taking a sledgehammer to literacy and, and really trying to get kids uh, reading uh, early and often. And I was honored uh, to, to support that effort. Thank you very much. Yes. And for those of you that are listening, what is Reading IQ and how do you access it? Reading IQ can be accessed by going to www.readingiq.com. That's just the letter I and the letter Q, readingiq.com. That's available through the end of this year for free throughout the state of Florida. So that's incredible. I'm loving hearing all of this good news. And it's kind of, it's sort of that bittersweet on there's really great news. And I feel as though we should be celebrating with big celebrations on the, the legislation that has passed that's taken so many years, but we've got a long way to go as Representative Lucas has said, and both of you have said. So I'd like to ask you, Florida's budget allocates about 2,400 per voluntary pre-K student annually which puts the state in 41st place among the 44 states with pre-K programs. In contrast, we did some research and Alabama spends about $6,000 per student. And you're smiling at me and I believe you must, you must have heard this before. A recent report from the Tampa Bay Partnership pointed out that Alabama meets all 10 benchmarks for high quality pre-K set by Rutgers, Rutgers University's National Institute for Edu- Early Education Research. Florida only meets two of those standards currently. I'm sure we're on the move, but can Florida become a state that not only requires early learning, but also the policy funding and infrastructure to go along? What would that look like? Yeah, and I was smiling because this is a conversation that my dear friend, uh, Representative Patricia Williams, has had with me the last several years. When I, before I was the education and employment chair, I was the pre-K through 12 education and preparations chair. And she was the ranking member for the Democrats on that committee. And now she's the ranking member on the education and employment committee. So she's been my ranking member the last three years. And we have uh, developed quite the relationship and friendship. But this is one issue that she, you know, just hammers me on. 
mm-hmm. is uh, funding um, and early learning and, and especially pre-K. And that's one issue that we can, you know, frankly, uh, do better at and, and pour more resources on, you know, and, and do better in the coming years. I, I would just thought, yeah, so so Alabama's an interesting model, right? So they meet all the 10-year criteria. It's a very different approach than Florida. So Florida had a universal program from the get-go. So they passed the Constitutional Amendment in 2002. Every four-year-old can participate. Yes. So you create this, this massive program. Now, I'm not, I'm not making an argument for or against universal pre-K, but what Alabama did was they said, okay, we're going to start by serving, I believe it was 8% of the population, and we're going to make sure we meet these 10 criteria. Now, I don't know if I agree with all 10 criteria that NEAR sets out, but it's a, it's a good framework. I'll, I'll give them that. And what Alabama did is they said, okay, these are the 10 criteria we need to hit. How many children can we serve based upon the, uh, the appropriation? Well, it was 8%. So they, they, invested eight, they invested the dollars, they served 8%. They saw the outcomes. They went back to the legislature. The legislature said, this is working. We'll give you more money. Then they went to 12%. Then they went to 17%. I think now they're serving, serving about 33 to 35% of all the four-year-olds in the state. Very different approach than Florida, which was immediately universal. And we're sitting at about 80% market share of all four-year-olds in the state. So about 170,000 kids in pre-K. The BSA for pre-K is still less than what it was when the program first started in 2005. That's primarily because after the recession, because of the need for budget cuts, hundreds of dollars per student were, were, were chopped out. And there's been incremental increases. And, and Chair Livala, when he was running pre-K to 12 appropriations, added more money to the BSA. But the challenge that we see is in a program that serves 170,000 students, to get to $6,000, which is what Alabama is spending, you know, you're talking about a four to $500 million appropriation. So it's a, it's a major investment. I'm not saying don't make the investment, but I think what the legislature did this year was, you know, there's always been this conversation and, you, and, and you've heard this from when, you know, do we spend more money or do we fix the, you know, do we put the framework for quality in first, right? Do we, do we fund programs where we don't know if it's actually working? And I think mm-hmm. for those of us in the advocate space, We've, we've sort of come to terms with saying we need to have a, a high quality framework that, that will allow us to know which programs are working and which are not before we make these substantial investments. So I think you're going to see, hopefully, and I've talked to Chair Fine, who oversees the pre-K-12 Appropriations Committee about this. I would like to see an increase in the BSA funding, but I'll say two things around funding that we need to focus on. One, the school readiness funding and the way that it's determined based upon market rate is, is problematic for a lot of reasons. So I think, you know, there has to be a conversation about, because what it ends up doing is in a community like mine, you know, where people try and provide the cheapest care possible, the market rate is so low that the reimbursement from the state doesn't doesn't support a quality center. So, you know, looking at that formula is going to be really important. And then the state and, and Chair Lavall knows, I mean, the state got three and a half billion dollars in federal funding, which is three times the annual budget for early learning, which is an incredible amount of money. And there's a lot of things that that can go to. So you know, my hope is that some of those dollars are used in a way to sort of, uh, sub, you know, not supplant, but support the, the the funding mechanisms for SR, for school readiness and BPK. Because at the end of the day, I, I don't start, and I know Chris doesn't, we never start from the standpoint of like, just give us more money and we'll make it better. That's not how the world typically works. But in situations like we see in early learning where teachers are making $11 an hour, you know, right. that's predicated on the fact that the economics of it just don't work. You know, it's not like the K-12 system where a slot is $7,500, $8,000 from the state. You know, the pre-K slots are $2,483 and that's it. So it's just, the numbers are really difficult to to get around. No, I liked what you said when I heard you on the recent campaign for grade level reading. It was grade level reading week last week. And you mentioned that the money is secondary to infrastructure. 
And I, I like that concept. I, I like what you just said in, in terms of just making sure that we get it right and then expanding upon that. But it's so important to get it right and get it right quickly because every day we lose children to that lack of access. One of the other things you mentioned is that House Bill 7011 also, I believe it's that bill, also requires that all early learning coalitions create a transition plan from VPK to ensure that parents know what to expect and to begin to build those relationships because it's all about the trust. And share a little bit about that. I found that interesting and very heartening. Yeah, hugely important. Like, so in the K-12 system, you know, you talk about feeder patterns from elementary to middle, middle to high school. No one ever talks about feeder patterns from childcare to kindergarten. And, and they're real, right? There are, there are centers that typically will feed into an elementary school. So, um, well, so I think if you were to travel around the state prior to this legislative session, you'd find certain communities like mine in Miami-Dade where, where the Early Learning Coalition in conjunction with the school district created teams to help facilitate that transition from VPK to kindergarten, but it was not available statewide. So I think it just, again, speaks to the vision of the house. When, I, when, I, when, we, when the PCB was brought to us and we had the chance to look at it, I was sort of, my eyes open because I said, this has been an issue we've been talking about forever, that this, this disconnect between the early learning system and the K-12 system, to me, they have to be fully aligned because they fully support one another. So what the bill requires is that the, each early, early learning coalition, all 31, have to put into place or develop a plan to allow you know, parents to transition from BPK into kindergarten, letting them know what the expectations are, making sure that there are relationships between the kindergarten teachers and the BPK centers. And again, just building those bridges that didn't exist here before. Great. Thanks for for sharing that with us and explaining that. So both of you, uh, what's on the horizon for the next session in terms of boosting early learning and education and how can local communities get involved? Well, I think, you know, keep, you know, working on the stuff that we've already accomplished. The the early learning bill that we did this year that uh, Chair Lupus and Chair Graal championed was a few years in the making. And you know, we can continue the work in that area and other areas. And once we start committee weeks in about a month and a half or so, uh, six or seven weeks, you know, we start crafting the agenda, you know, of the session that, that will start in uh, January. I, I can't underscore enough, and I've said it to him multiple times, you know, Chair Ladvala spoke at my organization's summit last year. We did a, a statewide summit and and it was funny, I, I, I didn't get the chance to interview him, but, you know, HB 419 is, is, is a, you know, the policy behind this thing is something that's been pushed for a decade. The bill itself, it's in its third iteration. And I remember, you know, it died last year because the Senate couldn't get off its hands and, and pass the bill. And I remember, Chris, I think it was Madeleine, who's the, the president of my organization, said, you know, what do you think is going to happen with the early learning bill? And and Chair Lavala says, we're going to pass it out of the House. It's going to get passed by the governor and it's going to get passed by the Senate. We're going to get it to the governor. He's going to sign it, which I got to mean this. It's, you know, in a space like ours, which and again, Brian, you know this, we've never had the attention of the legislature and we've never had the we've never really had the attention of decision makers like the chair of the Education Committee. For them, for, for Chris to say something like that or for Chair Lavala to say something like that and then to put the weight of his role behind it. This bill doesn't happen without the speaker, without Chair Lodvala, without people saying, like, this matters and we need to get it across the finish line. Because this is a whole other podcast, Bronwyn. This was not an easy bill to pass at all. Yeah. And I also thought that there was 12 people on the Zoom call. I didn't realize, because that's <laughs> all the posters that were on there was 12 people. 
there was 500 people that were listening to it, and including some members of the media. So the media picked up on it. And so I had to, you know, make good on my promise that it was going to be. <laughs> Otherwise, I would have looked like an idiot. But, you know, it was important to chair lupus and chair lupus is one of my sub chairs. And to the speaker's credit, the first time that we're in the that I've been in the house, we have had three sub chairs in education. And, and one of those subcommittees is large role is in early learning and and elementary education and that's uh, chair lupuses and so you know if it's important to my one of my sub chairs and it's and there's nothing wrong with the policy i'm going to put my full weight behind it and and see that it uh, gets passed at least in the house and in whatever sway i have in the senate you know i'm certainly going to try to get it passed over there as well and and this year we are successful, but that, you know, we are successful in large part because of the work that Chair Lupus and Chair Grawl has, uh, ha- have put in uh, in years past. And the Senate finally was able to pass it, you know, but I also, you know, I'm a baseball fan and, and I love Babe Ruth and he called his shot and you know, <laughs> I didn't want to call my shot and then fail. So, and, and Representative Lupus several times during session reminded me what I told his organization in the Zoom call before session. So I had to make good on, on that promise. And, and Brian, this, this, is a, this is going to be a bill that I think people are going to look back 10 years from now. Like there, there, We pass 180 bills a year. And I said this on the floor. This is going to be a bill that people are going to look back and realize that they literally transformed the future of the state because, because of, of, of what this bill was able to do. I, I would just say really quickly for, for next year, I think a major focus has to be on on the funding formula and you know how the federal dollars are being spent. From a United Way perspective, my recommendation to all of you is you represent some of the most significant business interests in the state. You know, th- there should be conversations about how the business community is supporting families, uh, the families of their employees. And those are important conversations that I know the Florida Chamber of Commerce is having that you know I've been having with a number of CEOs across the state. So I think there are things that can happen outside the legislature. I'm not I'm not one to say that the legislature has to start mandating to businesses what they need to do. I think it's good business practices for corporations to have family-friendly business policies. Uh, and I think it's something that I, you know, hopefully the United Way start to get behind. Absolutely. I will also say that um, Ernest Hooper has been talking about early learning and early childhood education long before, to me, uh, long before he uh, started working at the United Way. And you know, he's been talking to me about that the last several years, you know, and so it, it's uh, between him and, you know, Representative Lupus. I did not want to, uh, you know, come home empty handed, <laughs> so to speak. No, well, we're we're happy about that. So thank you. This has been a really good conversation. I agree with you that what has happened this year is is so significant that it is something we will look back and we will be proud of the work that was done and how we supported that. Thank you, Representative Lupus. Definitely United Way will reach out and continue to reach out for businesses and get their support for families and children and understanding the impact of that. So finally, as legislative leaders, I'd like to ask each of you just to share briefly your thoughts on early learning and grade level reading and why both require the attention of our policymakers and legislation. I mean, I would just say that it gets uh, kids off on the right track and, 
you know, when students get further further behind, it gets tougher to catch up. And we've seen that firsthand during uh, the pandemic. And it's the same way when, when kids are young. Uh, I would just add, you know, you can't have a conversation about grade level reading unless there's a conversation about early learning. And, and part of my focus for 10 years has been drawing the line from, you know, infant and, and toddler care to whether or not that student's going to graduate from high school. And I can draw that straight line all day long. And I think for too long, we haven't thought about the early childhood years, the zero to three, zero to five as part of that educational continuum. And in reality, it is the foundation of the educational continuum. So that's why uh, I think it's something that if you're a lawmaker and you're not thinking about it, then you better start better start quickly. Absolutely. For thriving communities, for a thriving democracy. Thank you both. This has been a wonderful conversation and you are correct. There's probably several podcasts that we could have just focused on the different areas of that work, but I really appreciate your time and your efforts and our community thanks you for your leadership. Thank you. It's now time for Bronwyn's Big Takeaway. We mentioned the Tampa Bay Partnerships Report comparing Florida's VPK efforts to Alabama's VPK efforts. And I'm struck by one of the more salient points in the report. Allison Muhlendorf, Executive Director of the Alabama School Readiness Alliance, noted that as more students in the state enter higher grades prepared to learn, it's changing how teachers approach instruction. She remarked that the whole system has to change the way that they teach because when children come in already knowing how to express their thoughts and work with their neighbors, there are fewer discipline issues and an overall more productive classroom. More productive classrooms are exactly what we strive for in Florida. Education discussions do revolve around accountability, testing, school grades, and changing the system, all very necessary elements. However, the reflection of Mrs. Mondorf that perhaps the best way to improve K-12 learning is to improve our students' ability to learn is important because it starts early. To that end, United Way Suncoast's Quality Child Care Initiative launched this past year. The target is to ensure that children from all backgrounds have access to high-quality child care and early education. By working with our local early learning coalitions to identify sites, with a high concentration of Alice households, asset limited, income constrained, employed. This initiative focuses on four areas of quality childcare, new or improved curriculum, additional professional development opportunities and incentives, new supplies and educational toys, and additional parent engagement activities. Education can be a great equalizer, but to do so, all must have access. It's up to all of us to radically change how we see our children. Together, we are building the future by ensuring equitable access to early learning. If that is supported by thoughtful policy, then that future is certain. United we rise, united we win. Onward.